Perhaps the two greatest American songwriters of all time are Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen. Is that fair, John? Okay. Just making sure. And what's kind of crazy is that these two men lived at the same time, were contemporaries, and were friends. And they frequently worked together, visited with each other, and hung out. In the mid-1980s, they were both on an international tour, and they met up at a Paris coffee cafe for coffee. Because those are the sorts of things you do when you're a rock star. You meet up with other rock stars in Paris for coffee. Bob Dylan complimented Leonard Cohen on one of his recently released songs called Hallelujah and asked Cohen how long it took him to write it. Cohen answered, a couple years. And then Cohen asked Dylan how long it took him to write I and I, a song Cohen admitted he was fond of, and Dylan said, about 15 minutes. This dichotomy is even more pronounced when you realize that Cohen was lying. It took him a great deal longer than two years to write Hallelujah. It took him half a decade. He filled two notebooks with verses to this song. The song haunted him. He could never get it truly right. On one occasion, he ended up on the floor of his New York City hotel in his underwear, pounding his head against the floor, screaming, I can't finish this song. While there are many ways to talk about different types of innovation, there's a helpful way of talking about innovation as it relates to time. And this is to talk about conceptual innovation and experimental innovation. I promise this is going to get to Jesus soon. Conceptual innovation is something that happens immediately. Bob Dylan writing I and I in 15 minutes. Great art, great ideas come pouring out in our recognized, consumed, and appreciated immediately. Experimental innovation is innovation that happens slowly, over time, with many stops and starts in between. It's Leonard Cohen filling two notebooks and taking half a decade to write Hallelujah. It's something that happens over a long period of time. Culturally, we are really good at recognizing conceptual innovation when we see it. We don't always get on board, but we certainly react to them. I remember a number of years ago when Apple announced they were coming out with the iPad. It was going to be larger and heavier than a smartphone. A lot larger and really a lot heavier. But it was going to have some of the functionality of a laptop. And I remember being like, who's ever going to buy one of these things? <laughs> if you want something quick and easy, you just use your phone. And if you want to do a lot of stuff and have a lot of functionality, you use your laptop. Who is going to buy these tablets? Everybody. We don't always love conceptual innovation, but we certainly react to it. When Apple came out with the iPad popularizing the tablet, they were doing conceptual innovation. We didn't move slowly from cell phones and laptops to tablets. Steve Jobs spoke and there was the iPad. We aren't always as good at seeing and recognizing experimental innovation. And the journey the song Hallelujah takes from an idea tormenting Leonard Cohen to the most covered and downloaded song of all time is a prime example of that. Now, while all of this is interesting from an intellectual perspective, 
if you're a nerd like me. I'm not bringing this up merely to pontificate. Instead, I think the difference between conceptual and experimental innovation is important for how we understand the Christian season of Advent, the coming of Jesus at Christmas, and the way that God works in our world. You see, we want God to be a conceptual innovator. When we have problems in our lives, when we are seeking direction, when we witness suffering and injustice in the world, we want God to be a conceptual innovator. We want God to come out with a new plan, the best plan, the perfect plan to fix our lives, to give us direction, to redeem and restore creation. And we want God to put that plan into action and immediately make everything okay. How often have you faced a big decision, gone to God in prayer, and wanted an immediate and clear answer? Like every time, right? How often have you wanted God to give you immediate and clear direction? How often have you wanted healing, grace, comfort, deliverance, assurance, or acceptance, and we wanted that from God immediately? How often have we witnessed pain and suffering in our world and say, why won't God do something about that? Why won't God fix that? We want God to be a conceptual innovator. We want God to introduce a new paradigm that will solve the problems we face immediately so that we can move on in our better lives and in our perfect world. Sad part is that God is an experimental innovator. Today begins a season in the life of the church called Advent. Advent is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas where we wake up every morning and get a piece of chocolate out of our Advent calendar. No, wait. That's not it. Advent is the four Sundays before Christmas where we prepare our hearts to welcome the Christ child into our midst. But Christians prepare for Jesus differently than the rest of culture prepares for Christmas. The church says Advent is about preparing for Christmas, but by that we don't necessarily just mean getting the tree ready, getting your presents bought and wrapped, sending out Christmas cards, writing the Christmas letter, putting a cute little uh, candy cane border around it, and etc. I love my cute little candy cane border. Sorry, that was a digression. When the church talks about Advent as getting ready to welcome Jesus, what we mean is waiting. Advent is a time where we talk about waiting for Jesus. Remembering how Israel waited for Jesus and remembering how we are waiting for Jesus to return. Advent is about recognizing that we live in a world that needs saving, a world that needs redemption, a world that needs God to move and work and act. And we await the fullness of God's salvation in our lives, in our communities, and in our world. But even in observing Advent, we are conditioned to think that our world is fallen, our lives need direction, and here comes God and Jesus Christ to be that salvation. We are conditioned to celebrate Christmas as God's conceptual innovation. And don't get me wrong, Christmas and Jesus is a monumental, paradigm-shifting event. Yet at the same time, we wake up on December 26th pretty much the same people we were on December 25th. Just some of us with a couple new cool gadgets. This Advent, I want us to conceive of God as an experimental innovator. I want us to look at our Advent scriptures, scriptures that come to us from the Revised Common Lectionary, more on that in a second, and see how the announcement of Jesus, the waiting for Jesus, came to 
process of experimental innovation. And then to approach the birth of Christ through the framework of experimental innovation. Quick tie up. The Revised Common Lectionary is a grouping of scripture within a three-year series for the purpose of being read within Sunday worship. Each Sunday, there are readings from the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Psalms, and the Gospels. So over the course of three years, if you follow the lectionary and have four readings every Sunday, you'll read most of the Bible in worship. Normally we're on sermon series here, but there are lots of churches that do sermon, uh, that plan worship around the lectionary. So for Advent, though, this Advent, I took a look at the lectionary readings and chose one of the four for each Sunday of Advent uh, for us to look at. Time in. Now you can go home and say you know lots about the Revised Common Lectionary, and you won't feel like your time here has been wasted. Um, anyways, now because experimental innovation is a super nerdy concept, even for me, I want us to use a case study in experimental innovation as a lens through which we approach Advent. And that case study, if you hadn't guessed it, is the Leonard Cohen song, Hallelujah. Hallelujah is one of the most viewed and certainly the most covered song in history. It's been featured in basically every popular TV show there is. Grey's Anatomy, The West Wing, Gossip Girl, One Tree Hill, The O.C., Scrubs, General Hospital, etc. I only watched a few of those shows. Uh, pretty much every season of The Voice or American Idol or whatever show Fox is doing now that's basically American Idol but they don't call it American Idol has had this song featured during their season. And it really owes some of its popularity to Shrek, but we'll get to that later. This song is a thing. But the path it took to becoming a thing is a fascinating story. A story that I think can be illuminating as we look at the story of God's coming into the world. And it's also helpful in that some of the themes of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah help us understand the themes of Advent. Themes we will talk about shortly. The last way I hope that this will be helpful, and my final bit of preamble, I promise, is the ways in which each person's hallelujah is different, and it highlights different aspects of the song. We're going to look at four different songs, or at least four bits of songs, from Scripture this Advent. Every reading is really a song. And each song is going to be different and highlight different things, yet they are all still related. We'll touch on this a bit more in subs subsequent weeks, but seeing how different songs, related songs, uh, can sing, sorry, but seeing how different songs can sing related, sorry, I don't know what that sentence was, but seeing how different singers can take the same song but sing it differently, highlighting or muting themes, I think can be really helpful when we look at these different scripture passages that all deal with the same theme but highlight different things. At least I think that's what that sentence was supposed to say. Because clearly my mind is running ahead of or behind. Anyways, let's look at scripture. It's just a good place to turn. Today we are looking at Jeremiah chapter 33. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord our righteous Savior. 
Before I talk about this particular piece of Jeremiah, I need to talk about the tone the rest of the book takes. The general themes of Jeremiah involve Jeremiah announcing God's judgment upon Israel and foretelling the defeat of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians and and Israel's impending exile. A good bit of this book is God's message to the Israelites living in exile. There's a famous verse in Jeremiah that lots of folks have in artwork uh, on their walls or on pillows or whatever else you put artwork on the things that says, that is God saying, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That verse was written to people who had witnessed the destruction of their home, who were now living as captives in exile in a foreign capital. The underlying note of Jeremiah is despair. Israel was unfaithful, which led to their downfall. During Jeremiah's ministry, Israel experienced incredible suffering and loss. They saw the city of their God destroyed. They saw their homes destroyed. They were marched from their homeland to the capital city of their conquerors. They were beaten, embarrassed, and destroyed. The setting of Jeremiah is brokenness. The setting of Jeremiah is suffering. Israelites might even call it injustice, although Jeremiah will not. Outside of the particular context of this book, I think it's easy for us to not truly grasp the sense of hopelessness occupying Israel felt at this time. The big promise that God had made to Israel was that they would be a great nation. God had proven himself mighty and powerful and had declared that Israel was his people. In their defeat, what is happening and what has to be processed is more than just a tactical military defeat. It is the seeming undoing of the promises made by God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as they lived out in the people Israel. And yet, into this despair, into this loss, into this suffering, we hear the still, small voice of hope. The days are coming, says the Lord. That's our shorthand for hope. The days are coming. I will fulfill the promise I have made to the people of Israel and Judah. God is saying, you are still my people, I am still your God. I will raise up a Savior who will lead you in the ways of righteousness. And as the leader leads you in the path of righteousness, you shall be saved. Judah, Israel, shall be renewed, and Jerusalem shall stand again. This is what the people long for. This is what the people crave. This is their hope in the midst of a great darkness. And it's also, in many respects, the theme of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Hallelujah is a song of lived experience. It's a song that feels grounded and feels real. It's a song that doesn't deny the brokenness or despair that we feel. It's a song that doesn't shy away from feelings of hurt and pain. It's a song for people who have lived and who still have the courage to hope. The crazy thing about Hallelujah is that if you've heard the song, you probably haven't heard the original Leonard Cohen version. That version is quite different from the ones that get played and covered all the time. In the original, there is this middle verse that that gets dropped in the subsequent, more popular versions, yet I think serves as the song's core. 
Cohen writes and sings, you say I took the name in vain, I don't even know the name, but if I did, well really, what's it to you? There's a blaze of light in every word, it doesn't matter which you heard, the holy or the broken, hallelujah. Alan Light, who is a former editor of uh, music magazines, Vibe and Spin, wrote a long book on the history, composition, redefinition, and ascent of the song Hallelujah. And about that middle verse he writes, Cohen then builds to the song's central premise, the value, even the necessity of the song of praise in the face of confusion, doubt, or dread. There's a blaze of light in every word, it doesn't matter which you heard, the holy or the broken, hallelujah. A blaze of light in every word. That's an amazing line. Every word, holy or broken, this is the fulcrum of the song as Cohen first wrote it. Like our forefathers and the Bible heroes who formed the foundation of Western ethics and principles, we will be hurt, tested, and challenged. Love will break our hearts. Music will offer solace that we may or may not hear. We will be faced with joy and pain. But Cohen is telling us, without resorting to sentimentality, not to surrender to despair or nihilism. Critics may have fixated on the gloom and doom of his lyrics, but this is his offering of hope and perseverance in the face of a cruel world. Holy or broken, there is still hallelujah. Holy or broken, there is still hallelujah. That is precisely the message of Jeremiah. Jeremiah might rightly have been called to doom and gloom. And yet within, we hear the advent, we hear the Christmas promise that there is hope, the days are coming, that there is a future, that there is still hallelujah. This advent, let's begin by being honest and saying our December 26th is going to look a lot like our December 21st. There's no magic fix coming our way. But the call of Advent and the hope of Christmas is that the days are surely coming. There is light. There is hope. God will not forget his promises. And God will see to it that one day his promises are fulfilled. And for us, for us in the meantime, there is still hallelujah. Whether holy in the days that we feel we are living in God's presence or broken on the days we feel in exile, Holy or broken, there is still hallelujah. And that for us is hope. Let us pray.